into Chamber Breakers, presented by Verizon Business and Yahoo Finance. I'm Leanna Brinded, Director at Yahoo. And I'm Xavier White, CSR and Innovation Marketing Manager at Verizon Business. During this series, Leanna and I will be inviting thought leaders to break the echo chambers surrounding key societal issues. For the third season, we're unpacking capitalism, whether it's broken and what we can do and where we can go as businesses to pave a more equitable future for all. We're delighted to welcome Robert Reich, a celebrated American economist, professor, author and political commentator. Roberts has also served in numerous presidential administrations, including as the United States Secretary of Labor under President Bill Clinton. He's currently a professor of public policy at UC Berkeley, and he's the co-founder of Inequality Media. Welcome. Good to be here. It's fantastic having you here, Robert. And we're trying to boil the ocean here, I suppose, but we, we really want to unpack capitalism and whether it's broken. And while we have a lot to unpack in this episode. Can you first of all tell us a bit about Inequality Media and what you do there? Really, of my teaching, uh, I believe that the most important thing that I can do uh, is to explain to as many people as possible uh, how the system actually works because there is a lot of mythology out there, whether we're talking about capitalism or we're talking about our individual economies. Uh, people need to understand if they are going to be responsible citizens. Corporations also need to understand. That makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, we, we want to know, really, is capitalism broken? Um, because that's a big question. What would just be your main message on this? is broken to the extent that it overtakes democracy. That is, there is an uneasy relationship between capitalism and democracy. Uh, if companies, individuals become too powerful in terms of the democratic process, it's almost impossible for democracy to actually uh, respond to the excesses of capitalism. What we need uh, if we're going to capitalism and democracy, is for democracy to be in charge. We need uh, regulations, for example, antitrust rules. Uh, we need to restrict the kind of subsidies that go to businesses that are unrelated to any social goods. Uh, we need to make sure that the democratic system is in charge. Otherwise, there are going to be all kinds of social costs, all kinds of social problems created by capitalism that are not going to be addressed. And I know in your um, teachings and your papers and a lot that you do at Inequality Media, you talk about socialism for the rich and capitalism for the poor. Can you expand on that? The United States especially, uh, but in other advanced nations uh, like the UK, uh, we have a situation in which capitalism is probably the most brutal form of, uh, of kind of trade and relationships, economic relationships, uh, we see around the world. At the other extent, at the other side, we have Nordic capitalism, uh, which has a lot of safety nets that are very generous, uh, has a lot of public investments. But in the United States, there are very few safety nets. And the safety nets we have in terms of people who might be become unemployed or sick or disabled, uh, they are very minimal. Uh, there is no paid sick leave. There is no paid family leave. Uh, there is very, very little by unemployment insurance. In fact, even during the pandemic, fewer than 30% 
of people who lost their jobs were eligible for state unemployment insurance. Uh, so we've got the worst of all worlds. On the other hand, if you are very wealthy, if you're a CEO, if you are a banker, for example, uh, you live in a slightly different capitalism. It's, it's a socialist capitalism. Uh, you remember in 2008, the bankers got bailed out uh, while a lot of homeowners lost their homes. You remember uh, shortly thereafter, there was an attempt to constrain the financial system uh, to put in place some restraints on excess gambling. Well, they didn't really do all that much. We still have many of the problems we had leading up to 2008. Uh, we have CEOs across America who, even though they have not done a very good job by way of their companies, they still retire with golden parachutes. Uh, well, that's a form of the worst uh, cartoon version of socialism. It's, it's very true. We, we see it everywhere. And, and at the core of all of this really is wealth inequality. So how does so few people really end up controlling the world's capital, if you were to break that down for us? Part of it is uh, almost an inevitable uh, accumulation of wealth and power. You see, wealth and power are very closely allied, uh, even in a democracy. Uh, if you gather a great deal of wealth and a great deal of corporate uh, power, you have an influence in the United States especially great because of the uh, tendency of politicians to rely on big campaign contributions coming from the wealthy and from large corporations. Uh, that means that over time, laws and regulations uh, shift, they change in ways that add additional wealth to the wealthy uh, and make it harder and harder for other people to get ahead. Antitrust is a good example. We now have a situation where, uh, for example, a handful of CEOs, uh, including Jeff Bezos at Amazon, uh, control a very substantial portion of the economy and the wealth of the country. Uh, that gives them the ability to directly or indirectly uh, continue to hold antitrust at bay uh, and to prevent the government from doing very much about uh, the power that they've amassed. Uh, now, I don't want to be, I don't want to be understood to be, uh, saying that inevitably, uh, that we, we, we face, uh, great wealth and great poverty. Uh, inevitably, uh, we have inequality. That's not the case. If you go back to the United States between the Second World War and, let's say, 1980, uh, we had a period of time in which the country was becoming more equal. Uh, when we had laws like uh, the Civil Rights Act and the uh, Voting Rights Act uh, that would bring more and more people into the system, uh, black people and brown people, uh, women who had been second-class economic citizens were given more rights and opportunities. Uh, we were on the way to a more equitable society. It is possible. Uh, we didn't see the degree of inequality we have today. Uh, so the question that I keep asking myself is what was there going on between the Second World War and the uh, 1980s uh, that created the more equitable society and why the U-turn in the 1980s? 
I think that's a really good point there. And um, one of the things that being picked up on, and I definitely want to unpack a bit more, is that when we talk about systems and whether it's our economic system, our social systems, it, it is predominantly or by defaulted um, stacked in the favor and built around um, for this cis white man in the system. Um, and therefore it can feel like capitalism isn't for the black and brown people and marginalized communities. And like you, um, you said, there in the 80s there was progress and now it's um almost well it's u-turned is there a link between um wealth supremacy and white supremacy in that sense i think there is uh, that is um when i say that the wealthy uh in a place like the united states uh are in some indirect way collaborating with those people who want to divide whites and blacks who are white supremacists or racists. I don't mean uh, that there is a direct link. I, I simply mean that there are people who are very wealthy who tolerate and quietly encourage uh, racism or white supremacy for a very simple and obvious reason. Uh, and we see this through history. Uh, it's called for want of a better term, divide and conquer. As long as you can keep uh, working white people and working black people or the middle class whites, middle class uh, blacks, uh, feeling that the reason for their problems is the other, uh, rather than coming together and seeing where all the wealth has gone, uh, and that is it's gone to the top, uh, then they cannot and will not come together as a voting coalition uh, to try to get back some of that wealth, to change the rules of the game so that they are fairer. Uh, and that divide and conquer strategy, again, we see it going back uh, really hundreds, if not thousands of years. This is nothing new. Uh, and I don't want to be understood to accuse every wealthy person of engaging in this, not by any stretch of the imagination. But it is clear if you just look at the last 40 or 50 years in the United States, when the median wage has barely budged adjusted for inflation, while most of the gains have gone to the top, uh, racism has been used politically to divide America. Uh, and we saw it uh, really beginning with Ronald Reagan uh, in terms of his talking about welfare queens uh, we saw that in George H.W. Bush uh, in the election of 1988, when he talked about Willie Horton and tried to uh, whip up a lot of uh, concern about uh, the Democrat uh, who then was running, Michael Dukakis, that he was going to let uh, black people who have been accused or were convicted of rape out of prison. Uh, all of these dog whistles, as they may be called, uh, have been used politically and increasingly used politically to divide whites from blacks. And I think it's very convenient for the very wealthy for the simple reason you don't create a, a large coalition of working class and middle class people uh, that want to change the rules to make the economy fairer. You're painting a, a pretty grim picture, but I suppose it's a, a grim reality. And, and thinking about it, and how you know we've we've U-turned, we're not necessarily in the greatest place globally on this kind of thing. Do you think that if we we rethought capitalism, or if we rebuilt it in some way, we could start to solve this wealth redistribution um, and even the problems that you talk about here? Yeah, I I do think we can. We should. We must. We have no choice. That is. Um, 
you look around the globe, there really is not an alternative to capitalism if we define capitalism as predominantly the private ownership of property and free exchange of goods and services. Even in so-called communist China, we see that form of capitalism. Uh, even in the Nordic countries, socially democratic countries, we see fundamentally an economic system that is capitalist. The real question is, what kind of capitalism? Is it kind of a soft capitalism with, as I said before, a lot of public investments? Or is it a very harsh, hard capitalism uh, in which the rich get richer and everyone else is really quite stressed? And I would say the United States exemplifies the harshest form of capitalism. So I know that um, there's a lot of suggestions out there, recommendations on how we can tackle this broken system and change it for the better. And um, we'd love to talk about some of those. But one of the key ones that keeps coming up is naturally changing um, the tax either tax loopholes or increasing the tax on the super wealthy and or is it a question of them having to donate billions how do we um how do we really put forward something that could actually happen because when it comes to tax loopholes, when it's cross-country, domiciles, all those different things, that really requires countries um, on multiple different continents to really come together to close those holes. So what do you think about that? We are trying. Uh, and Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary of the United States, has done a very good job uh, getting international agreement about a minimum corporate tax. So there isn't the kind of tax avoidance we've seen. Uh, and again, particularly corporate tax avoidance. Uh, but beyond that, I think it is also possible and desirable and necessary uh, for international cooperation on all sorts of minimum standards. Uh, remember, uh, well, maybe you don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember uh, because I wasn't alive then, but we did have an earlier uh, what might be called Gilded Age in the 1880s, 1890s, in which we saw a similar phenomenon in terms of inequality, extraordinary wealth, extraordinary poverty, uh, suppression of many people's wages, uh, anti-union activities, uh, and also a great deal of corruption. Uh, that was followed starting in 1901 in the United States by what we call the Progressive Era, which saved capitalism from its excesses. Uh, had we not had that, I'm not sure we would have maintained capitalism. Uh, and then, of course, in the 1930s, when we had another very, very bout, a strong bout, a negative bout of, of kind of uh, a depression, uh, we had in the United States and elsewhere around the world attempts to soften the blows, to uh, to create laws and rules that would enable people to survive that kind of downturn. Uh, well, I think uh, history shows us that there are many things that we can do to make capitalism work for all of us. Uh, the problem, as you alluded to, is a kind of chicken and egg problem. That is, if the people who have the most power in society, and I'm talking about very wealthy people and big corporations that have a great deal of influence, partly because they finance elections, um, if they don't want something to occur, it's very hard for it to happen. Uh, and so we can talk all we want about good ideas, uh, but to make those ideas actually come to fruition, we've got to somehow either create a very large voting coalition. We talked about a moment ago of people who are poor and middle class, regardless of race, uh, or we've got to convince 
uh, the very wealthy people and the corporations that is in, it is in their interest ultimately uh, to support a more humane form of capitalism. Uh, actually, my own view is we, we have to do both. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So you, you mentioned you know, sometimes there's, there's difficulties with it, there's, there's pushbacks. Um, and, you know, we often hear when it comes to companies and taxation, things like, oh, well, we can't afford it because we provide this many jobs, it would you know, we'd lose jobs or we can't put up the minimum wage because that would mean we'd have to fire people. All those sort of cliche responses that, that we all know. Um, what would you say are the myths around that and ways that we could perhaps overcome it so that we can change the system? Well, I think we all have to understand that there has been, at least since the late 70s, early 1980s, a huge shift in the rules of the game of capitalism, uh, certainly in the United States, to a lesser extent in the UK and elsewhere, uh, those changing rules do systematically favor big corporations, not small corporations, big companies, and the very wealthy. Uh, it's not that we've created uh, a lot of new jobs and a lot of wealth for everyone else. No. In fact, most everybody else have have actually stagnated in terms of their incomes. Uh, the bottom 40% of Americans are in debt, uh, even in, in, even in, in 2019, before the uh, pandemic, the bottom 40% were, uh, were, were suffering kind of negative wealth effects. They, that is, they were in debt in order to survive. Uh, so this economy is not working. When, when corporate elites or very wealthy people say, oh, but if you do that, we're not going to be able to innovate or grow the economy or hire people. What we've got to understand is that the average person, the median worker in America right now is worse off in many respects than he or she was in the late 1970s. Yeah, absolutely. And there's some, there's some things in here where the first thing that comes to mind, and I know this is very topical and it's only recently, but this race to space. And when we do talk about the people that are most empowered, the most wealthy, we've got Elon Musk, we've got Jeff Bezos, and there's that race to space. So it feels crazy when you talk about this whole, the for, um, bottom 40% in terms of earners having even negative effects. And yet at the same time as a society, we have billionaires who are able to create their spaceships, go into space for 10 minutes, which cost billions. Um, but then the workers, which were congratulated by, I think, Bezos saying, 
you made this happen, every worker, every consumer, um, are still on minimum wage. And we were talking before about workers' rights. How do you pair that up and where do we go from here? How could a situation like that or a case study like this be turned into something positive for the system versus feeling very separate and very alien to the average person on the street? Uh, let's put it this way, Liana. Most people today, if you ask them in the United States, and I do focus groups all the time, uh, they don't think capitalism is working for them. Uh, one of the reasons that Donald Trump was successful in 2016 is he said over and over again, the game is rigged and I am going to unrig it for you. Now, uh, he was a little bit of a Trojan horse because uh, he didn't really unrig it for most people. Most people did not improve in terms of their jobs or their livelihoods. Uh, there was a big tax cut uh, for big corporations and the very rich. Uh, but the fact that Donald Trump did appeal to the working class and to so many Americans with this theme of, uh, you know, the game is rigged and you need to have it unrigged, uh, reveals to me a huge populism uh, that is bubbling over. It's bubbling over in the Republican Party in terms of Donald Trump still being a kind of a, a cult figure. It's bubbling over also in the Democratic Party in the United States because the, the major force, the biggest force in the Democratic Party um, are uh, kind of young people and black people, uh, brown people, people who have really given the force and effect and energy uh, to uh, the, the Democrats that enabled them to take over the House and the Senate. Now, politicians aren't dumb. Politicians look across the spectrum of the United States and see, both on the left and the right, that the strongest forces are populist forces. Populist forces in the sense that they don't trust the elites. They feel that they've gotten a bad deal. Uh, they see Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and others uh, going into the atmosphere and beyond the Earth's gravitational pull. And by analogy, they say to themselves, wait a minute, the rich are seceding from the rest of us, uh, taking away basically what they can, and we are left behind. Uh, that is not a hard message for people to get. And I think that if the wealthy of this country want to avoid the, a continuing populist revolution, and I, I see the beginnings of Trump in 2016 as the beginnings of that populist revolution, a very negative one, by the way, for democracy, then I think the wealthy and big corporations have got to say it is un, in our interest to make sure that capitalism works for everyone, not just for the elites. And when we talk about the um, elites, and we've talked a lot about obviously the corporations and the billionaires at the top, there is something that I definitely wanted to talk about now before we get onto the next part, is really about how can we, um, as a capitalist society or structures, actually for the um, pass or separate um, earning power in capitalism, but also socialism when it comes to healthcare and um, for prisons and schools, for example. I know the US is very, very different for the UK and our kind of structure is where the taxpayer, we pay for free, free quote unquote, healthcare, but we, we fund healthcare, our schools can be free um, and that it's not really, and there's a lot of it is not for profit. And in the US, that's something very different. I'd love you to set a scene on that, but also give your thoughts on 
Is that a good middle ground? Is there a way to actually separate that capitalist structure from the social elements um, of our day-to-day lives? And the UK, I think, uh, does show that if you avoid privatization, if you have uh, a public health system, a public education system, uh, and if it is good enough, you can keep the middle class. You can also keep uh, uh, public confidence and, and trust in it. The problem we have in the United States, and it's a problem that the UK will be having because the UK inevitably follows uh, with some lag time behind the United States, is that um, the the public uh, sector becomes starved of resources uh, and the wealthier elements of society start seceding into their own privatized care, whether you're talking about health care or education. And once the uh, wealthy start seceding into their own privatized services, uh, they, they, the public sector no longer has either the financial revenue, nor does it have the political support it needs to continue to provide excellent care and excellent services. Uh, so that's what you have to be aware of. It's kind of a vicious cycle. Uh, we've experienced that in the, in the United States. Uh, a lot of people uh, have become so uh, sort of disillusioned, let's put it that way, with government because services are starved uh, and services don't have political support uh, that uh, people say, well, I, you know, I, I will only turn to the government if I must. Uh, I, if I can possibly afford it, I want private health care. I don't trust uh, government health care at all. Uh, and if I can possibly afford it, I want government education. I mean, private education. I don't trust government education. Uh, so be aware of that vicious cycle. It's interesting because, uh, you know, you mentioned um, billionaires taking off in their rockets being a, a metaphor as well as quite literal. And, and there it's sort of the same thing where they take off and leave those behind. And just as the flames come out of the rocket, and they char everything that's sort of left behind. And thinking about that and, and what's happened recently and, you know, acknowledging that we've got a pandemic, it, it's been an unprecedented moment in our lifetimes. It's thrown up some equal opportunities. It's, it's leveled the playing field in some areas, but it's also hurt the most vulnerable and on that sort of rocket analogy what do you make of the fact that the world's 2395 billionaires got 54 percent richer during the pandemic but yet you mentioned you know those that lost their jobs many in many countries around the world failed to qualify for state support pandemic uh, has lifted the curtain on much of what we're talking about and revealed the degree of inequality uh, and the consequences of that inequality. Uh, in the United States, not only do you have the richest of the rich getting far richer, I mean, the 600 uh, billionaires in the United States increased their wealth during the pandemic by a total of $1.8 trillion. Now, I give you these th this data, because, but these numbers don't mean anything. People have a very hard time even understanding what $1.8 trillion means. Uh, but $1.8 trillion uh, is approximately the cost of the entire stimulus bill uh, that squeaked through Congress, uh, that uh, basically is keeping people alive right now uh, as we see the virus surging once again, the Delta version of the virus. Uh, so uh, we have the wealthy getting wealthier 
uh, conspicuous consumption uh, out of control, uh, not just rocket ships, but Jeff Bezos have building another mansion with 25 bedrooms, uh, while people are getting thrown out of their rental units uh, simultaneously. Uh, we have a huge problem of homeless uh, people without houses. Uh, our, our cities are filling up with homeless people. You, 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 you can't avoid this reality. Uh, we see it during the pandemic. And we also see another piece of the reality, and that is that if you have a large and growing portion of your society who are either homeless or in very, very dire straits, that inevitably hurts everybody. Uh, with regard to the pandemic, uh, these people become petri dishes for the next variant. Uh, so it's in everybody's interest to make sure that everybody uh, is at least up to a minimum standard of, uh, of, of decency and, sust and sustainability and sustenance. Do you think with the pandemic and with everything that's happened as well, do you feel, I mean, I, I'm trying to grasp here that there's going to be some hope, that there's going to be some change. Do you feel the pandemic, just like you said, lifted the curtain, put a spotlight and really made it aware that all these issues is everyone's issue? Do you think this actually marks a turning point where some of the suggestions and recommendations or explorations and how we can fix the system um, may actually happen, may actually be actionable? Uh, we don't know. Uh, I, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic in the United States because we have right now not only a big infrastructure bill uh, moving possibly through Congress, but a $3.5 trillion uh, a bill that will provide all of the so-called soft infrastructure, everything from uh, child care to elder care, to uh, help for working parents, uh, to a lot of the other things that a place that suffers from harsh capitalism like the United States should have done years ago. Uh, now, will it be enacted? Uh, it's too early to tell. Uh, as you may know, the Democrats have a very tiny majority in the Senate and the House. Uh, by uh, the fall, we ought to know much more. Uh, but that part of me and that part of you that would like to be optimistic, well, there are some reasons to be optimistic. On the other hand, I look at the extent to which this country is divided uh, politically. Uh, there's a lot of anger in the system. A lot of it is uh, a legacy of Donald Trump, who exploited the divisions that were already there, by the way. Uh, and uh, I become a little bit less optimistic about our collective capacity to make capitalism work for everyone. Yeah, I, was, I guess because I was carrying on this, really trying to trying to save it and be optimistic theme. Um, you mentioned a few different countries earlier with their different systems, the different sort of stages of capitalism and variations. Um, and you've mentioned that that bill that could do some good things. Do you have any good examples? Is there a case study we can look to here, um, or an element of something that you think, yes, that's that's worth noting. These studies I would, pref I would prefer to look at are, number one, the United States between uh, 1946 and 1979. Uh, a case study in how people came together and tried to improve everybody's lot, and inequality fell dramatically, and social investments in public goods increased dramatically. 
another case study is obviously the Nordic countries, as I suggested before. Uh, I think they are struggling. It's not as if it's easy for them in the face of the headwinds that we are now all facing, but they're doing, I think, uh, Sweden and Norway and Denmark and Finland, they're doing a, a very good job, in my view, in light of these headwinds. Uh, those would probably be the, t the two major areas to look at. Uh, for uh, the United States, I would prefer we look back, uh, not again, that the post-war era was uh, was a good golden era. It, there were a lot of problems, but at least we were making progress. I'd like to go back to that degree of progress, not to those days, but to that, um, uh, the improvements that we saw in those days. Well, Robert, it's been such a fascinating conversation, but before we go, there is something that we really like to, at the end of any episode, just make sure that there's a takeaway because there's a lot of corporations that will be listening into this or watching it um, or reading about it. And one of the things it can feel like and I said it right at the beginning, may fill up boiling the ocean because there's so much we need to do to really make it an equitable future for more people and to really fix the system in any way that we can. As a corporation or someone sitting in a corporation, what can be some steps that they can actually take to start working towards that progress to actually make um, the future a better place? States, I would say that my definition of corporate social responsibility is to get out of the way, not to use your corporate public relations and government relations offices to distort the political process, uh, not to stop uh, such issues as improving or raising the minimum wage or improving people's lives with regard to paid sick leave or paid family leave, but to the contrary, actually support uh, those pieces of legislation. I don't believe that it is possible for individual corporations to, on their own, given their fiduciary responsibilities to their shareholders, to, on their own, do these things for their shareholders, for their workers. I think that what these corporations need to do is be much more proactive politically uh, and make capitalism work for everyone. Thank you so much. So before we go, we just want to ask you, where can people find out more about what you're saying? Um, can they follow you on social platforms, etc.? They certainly can, Xavier. I'm so glad you asked. Uh, there are a number of social platforms that I am, uh, I write on. Uh, my blog, uh, robertreich.org, but also inequalitymedia.org, uh, an organization I co-founded, uh, a group of extremely talented young people who are working with me uh, to make videos and all sorts of other uh, materials, teaching materials that will hopefully enable people to have the arguments they need uh, to be politically active uh, and change the system for the better. Thank you so much, Robert. It's been fantastic talking to you. And for everyone that's been watching and listening, to find more videos and articles about this series on the Yahoo Finance site, um, please check out yahoofinance.com. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear more.